So 1 Corinthians 15, um, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 12. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 says this. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? This is the problem in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, I would, I would suggest that while the pragmatic, practical problem facing the church at Corinth was the sense of unity, which we've talked about since, since the 1st of September, the doctrinal problem, the teaching problem was this. Some had said there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, they were not talking about the resurrection of Jesus. They were talking about the resurrection of other believers. But as Paul is going to show, and we'll see over the next few weeks, to deny the resurrection of the believer then is to deny the resurrection of Jesus. One of the things that we need to recognize and be aware of is that sometimes we have doctrinal beliefs or we have things that you know, we think are true. And we don't fully grasp the unintended consequences of what we might believe, how they may impact other doctrines or beliefs, even if we don't know it. One of the things that, you know, we do tend to keep things simple around here. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, I don't sweat whether you agree with me 100% on some things. But what we teach and proclaim, we are very precise. We are very diligent in rightly divining the word of God and being accurate according to the revelation of God, that is the scriptures of what we teach and what we preach. Because if we mess up at some point, it can have unintended consequences. Now, I can't help it if people hear me wrong. That happens all the time. It drives me nuts. Pretty sure I heard you say blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you didn't hear me say that. Your mind just ain't functioning at a good capacity. I ain't ever said that. But the, the, the diligence to be correct is important. This is what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Corinthians 15 is going to deal with the resurrection. Now, what we're going to have and what we'll get through today, and I've actually preached from it in different capacities a couple of times, is the probably earliest written statement of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I say that because I know you think, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all before 1 Corinthians. Well, in what they depict chronologically, yes. But in terms of being written, 1 Corinthians was written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. The only books in the New Testament written before 1 Corinthians, probably James. And then, other than James, Paul wrote some books, for sure, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. I believe Galatians. And then 1 Corinthians then would have been Paul's fourth and the fifth chronologically written. And it is the one that has this beautiful account of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, part of the importance of understanding this is that there are those who say and those who believe outside of Christ is Christianity. And actually some within the very liberal, most liberal elements of Christianity up until even uh, well, still today, but it was fairly widespread as soon, even by some, that the early church, and by the early church, we mean at the end of the first century, start of the second century, added the actual resurrection to the account of the Gospels in order to justify um, what they were doing and what they were teaching and believing. In fact, many believed, some, and some still do, incorrectly, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written in the second century. You know, that's been pretty much all blown out the door, and even most liberals, the scholars would understand that it's not. But they would say that at some point along the way, they added to those stories. Now, I tell you this because here's what you need to understand. 
Paul is universally recognized as a real live, honest to goodness person. I mean, it, it, there's no, I mean, outside of Jesus, of the New Testament people, he is the most understood to have lived, to actually be historical. In fact, some would say even more than Jesus, but that's, you know, another, another argument. But so people, even non-Christian scholars know about Paul. His influence is felt around the world. And it's universally accepted that he lived in the first century. Now, everybody who's anything at all about Christian history and scholarship knows that Paul wrote some books. Now, not everyone agrees how many and when they were written. But the one book of all the letters he wrote that is universally accepted as having been written by Paul is 1 Corinthians. As, as much as, if not more than any other. Thessalonians are the same way, but Corinthians. So, here's the thing. It's regarded as a unity. It's not regarded as piecemeal together. You have a real historical figure that had to have lived in the middle of the first century who wrote a book that everybody recognizes as authentically his that is in the middle of the first century that has an account of the resurrection of Jesus. The account of the resurrection of Jesus nullifies any possibility that the church added it later. So sometimes, you know, some of you watch all those goofy shows that are on all those history channel and all that about Jesus. You watch them and, and you know, you go, oh my gosh, they said this or that. And, and I'm always asked by people, did you watch this show? No, I don't watch any shows about Jesus on TV because I know a lot about Jesus from, you know, what I read. There's 90% of the so-called scholars that they have, they're just guys who study, gals who studied a lot, got degrees. It doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. You can be a so-called scholar and be wrong. Happens all the time. All the time. Especially in Christianity. And so I don't ever pay attention to that. But if you do and you hear stuff like that, and it's always designed to cause you doubt, understand, most of the time, they're wrong. Especially if they disagree with me. (laughs) And so the historicity of the early church's recognition of the resurrection of Jesus is viable. And the importance of it is this. Everything they did was based on the resurrected Christ. I tell you that because this is what's important. Paul says, Now I make known to you, my brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, which also you stand. He says, I'm making known to you. I have made known. The word make known means I continually make known. It is a constant thing that I teach. What was the one thing that Paul taught over and over again? It was the gospel. Here's the cool thing. In the Greek, the word, the phrase, the gospel which I preach to you is, Joe, you got your Greek Testament to check me on this? No, no, yeah, that's right. And the guy who would isn't here. So good, I can make this up and no one knows. (laughs) Is basically, it's euangelion, euangelizomai. In other words, euangelion is a noun, euangelizomai is a verb. And it means evangel, good news, evangelism. What Paul writes is, I, I, I preach to you, I evangelize to you the evangel. I good news to you the good news. I gospelize to you the gospel. You get it? It's kind of a double phrase. He says emphatically, the one thing that I constantly shared was Jesus. And I shared it in such a way as I evangelized you with it. So he's making that clear. The gospel is what I brought to you. I preached it 
You received it, you stand in it. I mean, you've immersed yourself in it. Verse 2, by which you are saved. You're, You're delivered from sin and hell and death by that gospel. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believe in vain. Now, the if you hold fast does not mean that if you don't hold fast, you're going to lose it. But what he's saying is this. The holding fast to what I preached, the believing what I told you to believe, is the evidence that you are saved. Unless you believed in vain, or it means haphazardly. In other words, it says, unless it wasn't real. And unless what you believed just wasn't legit. Your continuation in that gospel is the evidence of your salvation. Now, you know, we, we talk about whether people can lose their salvation. Yeah, I've had you know, discussions with people and, and other pastors and, and folks. And one of the things I hear is, well, somebody comes along and they just don't live the life or they rejected it, blah, 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 blah. And, I, and my comment simply is this. Just because someone says they're a follower of Christ doesn't mean they are. Does the life give evidence of it? And that's biblical. So, I mean, sometimes people struggle and stumble. I know and live in sin and come back. I got all that. But, <laughs> you, you know, whether or not you can lose your salvation, you can't lose what you never had. I've never lost a million dollars in the stock market because I've never had a million dollars. So, I mean, you, you've, you've got to understand that, that when you talk and when you discuss the context of what hap- happens, no, you can't lose your salvation. But you can't lose what you don't have either. That's always my concern in every church that I pastor. It's the number of people who think because they walk down an aisle, they went to the camp or whatever, 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 they don't, you know, they don't get saved, but they don't give any evidence of it. That's a concern. So now he shares what the gospel is in verses 3 through 5 and then following that. So here you have in verses 3 through 5 and following, especially 3 through 5, you have the core of the gospel. This is the gospel, the good news. What is it? This is it. For I delivered to you, or I gave over to you, as of first importance, what I received. So he says, what I received, what I got, I give to you as of primary importance. Now, who did he get it from? Lots of discussion. He get it from one of the other apostles. Well, other places he said he didn't. We would most likely understand this. He got it from Jesus in some capacity originally. And during the time that he was dormant or inactive in ministry for about a 14-year period and was refining his understanding of who Jesus is through, a different, through various processes, he got it, figured it out in its entirety. Whatever that capacity was, and it doesn't matter what it was. He's got it. He preached it to you. And here's what he says. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So that's the first thing. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, what scriptures? Well, the only scriptures they had back then was what we call the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. I say this all the time. Paul's writing the New Testament. This is the fourth or fifth book that will be written that would be New Testament. So they're writing it. Sometimes you want to say exactly where does it say that he was going to die, you know. Uh, and, and most likely the best place to look sometimes is in um, Isaiah 52, 53. I think what Paul, when he uses the term scriptures here, and understand Paul was the most brilliant scholar that Christian scholar that's ever lived. There's no one who knows more about 
Jesus that's ever lived and, and written about it than Paul and influenced life other than Jesus himself. A lot of times, what, when Paul talks about scriptures, when any of them do, they're talking about in general. They understood what we call the Old Testament points to a Messiah. Remember all the time I tell you the Old Testament points to something, the New Testament fulfills it? That's why. From a general reading of the Old Testament, it was apparent that there would be a Messiah who would have to suffer and die. It, it, Isaiah points that out. So, and, and so does the Psalms. So he says, he died for our sins. He died in our place on our behalf and took our sins. So that's a critical nugget right there. It's not just that he died. He died on account of sin. I'm going to talk about that over the next few weeks in, um, on Sunday mornings because we're getting to that point in the Gospel of Mark where we're dealing with going to the cross. So he took our sins upon him, and he died in our place. He died on our behalf. He's our sacrifice, our substitute. So he died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And then he says he was buried in, in the buried part because, you know, there was a place that he was located. And that location is important because then it says, and... He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So he was buried and he was raised back to life. The fact that they knew where the body of Christ was located at one point, and then it wasn't there, becomes critical. He was raised according to the scriptures. Now, you know, where in the Old Testament does it say, you know, he was raised back? Some think it may be a reference to Jonah. Probably there's a couple of Psalms that it's a reference to. But in general, this idea of coming back. And so you have here the nut of all the kernel, the death, burial, resurrection. We're going to add the appearance there in just a second. Now, what, what's important is all this is if you just leave it there before we read on about the resurrection, then what you have is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus before the appearances. Some could argue, well, where's the evidence of the resurrection? The evidence of the resurrection is not the empty tomb, by the way. I hear that. There's a song. An empty grave is there to show my Savior lives. It's moving, except that's not true. An empty grave is there to show that Jesus ain't there. From a scriptural standpoint, which is all that matters, right? Not, not the songs that we write that sound good. Not, that's not what matters. Sorry to all the music people. That's not what matters. What matters is what the revelation says. And the revelation of God says next, and then he appeared to Cephas in the twelve. The evidence of the resurrection is the appearance of Jesus Christ. And well, now the, the empty tomb is important. Don't get me wrong. And I sometimes preach about the empty tomb and the importance of that. But it's the whole package. Death, burial, resurrection, appearance. And we're going to talk about those appearances more in just a minute. Um, that is in essence the gospel. That's the validity. I preached throughout the course of just my seven years here. Um, wasn't it like seven years ago this Sunday I came, if you ever call it last Sunday? Something like that. You were on that committee, remember? No, you remember shot. Do you remember? It was like, I mean, I, was, I started seven years in May, but it was like seven years. Uh, I have preached numerous times on the resurrection and its significance and the evidence and laid all that. I preached an entire series about it uh, one time in a mini series about it, a little series entitled Bigger Series another time. The appearances of Jesus matter. And what happened in the lives of the people who saw him matter. So you have, the God, this is the gospel message. This is, this is it. Everything hinges on this. Everything spins off this. This is our ultimate proclamation. This is the thing that we proclaim to people over and over and over in some shape, form, or fashion. 
52 Sundays of sermons a year. 2023 is going to be 53 Sundays. You get that bonus Sunday in there. A large number of times, we're going to focus specifically and explicitly on the gospel. Period. Especially for a church like ours that has so many people who don't know Jesus come all the time. It's important. So he appeared then to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. So, and, and now what Paul does, and, and he leaves out some of the appearances. He leaves, and he adds some we don't have in the Gospels. But the Gospels haven't been written yet either. He doesn't mention the women. It's not because he didn't know about it, but in, in the gist of his argumentation, of his, his doctrinal statement, the testimony of women wasn't valid. He's writing to a primarily Gentile church and to Gentiles, laying things out. So the fact that Mary was the first to see him, uh, the fact that Mary and the other ladies were the first to see the empty tomb, and then Mary was the first to see him, that's important, and it's important in, in part of our evidence because you know, they would, the early church would never make up that the first people that saw Jesus alive, first was a woman. They'd have never done that. That's just been, that'd have been, there's no, in fact, if a woman didn't see Jesus, they'd have never made that up, period. So, you know, in Paul's argument, and what he's trying to convey to them about the resurrection, that's not important. In the overall story, it is important. So, he appeared to Cephas in the 12th. Then he says, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remained until now, but some have fallen asleep. So Matthew 28, we don't know for sure. There's no specific place where he appeared to 500. Most believe it's Matthew 28 because he, there was a large number of people. And maybe, maybe not. But this is the great part that I like. He's saying 500 people saw Jesus alive at one time 25 years ago. A lot of them are still living. So if you don't believe me, go ask them. I mean, there are going to be people who probably are going to read this letter and say, yeah, I was one of them. I mean, one of the easiest things to do, if you want to say, well, we're not going to talk to Peter because Peter obviously is going to say, so I'm okay. There was 500 people. He's in essence, he can say, and I can probably teach you the names of a lot of them. I mean, it's just out there. That's pretty strong evidence. So he talks about that. Then he says he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. So he, he appeared to James. Now, who is this James? Is it James, the brother of John? Well, no, because he already mentions him with the apostles. This is the James, the brother of Jesus, who was not a believer of Jesus at the time of the, at the crucifixion. He didn't follow. He didn't follow Jesus. Now, time to go into all that. He didn't follow Jesus. He's the brother of Jesus. Didn't follow Jesus. At some point, he did follow Jesus. When it, the, probably the first book of the New Testament is the book of James. I'm studying that right now. In fact, um, in July, when we have our deep fry, it's on the, it's on the book of James. And uh, that's the last Friday, I think, of July. And so, you know, James at some point became a follower. When? We don't know when, but Paul says he saw Jesus. That's a critical piece of evidence. And the reason it's critical is because he was not a believer of Jesus before the crucifixion. But he was after. Why? Why, if you didn't believe your brother was a savior before he was killed... Why would you believe after he was killed? Well, unless he was resurrected from the dead. So that's important. And, you know, it's always important. I mean, you just, I've, I've heard several talk, people talk about it like, you know, any of us have a brother or sister who brags and you know, talks about all the stuff they're going to do. And, you know, you know yeah. You know, you, no one's going to believe their brother is the Messiah, right? I mean, it's just not going to happen. 
unless he dies and comes back to life, then he'll probably do that. So change was a pretty important piece of it, believer. And the last one he says, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now the phrase untimely born is interesting because it, it's a phrase used to have a miscarriage. That's what it means. And so his spiritual birth, <laughs> in many ways, was a miscarriage. It's one untimely born. And so there's a lot of discussion what that means. Some think it's because Paul you know, was not a, a very handsome man. There's some outside biblical sources, early church fathers. But most likely it means this. Of all the people who would be a follower of Jesus, my spiritual birth was somehow different. It was not normative. It was an aborted miscarriage. It's, it's, it's the unseemly birth. Why? And he mentioned later, I persecuted Christians. So of all people to become a follower of Jesus, I'm the last. Not because he'd be the last to believe. Because he'd be the last person that Jesus would ever appear to. Why in the world would Jesus appear to Paul? Because Jesus appears to Paul. And Paul becomes a believer. Then you have the smartest guy in all of that part of the world who once tried to kill everyone who was a part of the Christian movement. All of a sudden you have him as a believer. He can change the world. And he did. By what he wrote. So you have this list and it goes on. Paul talks about himself. He says, I am the least of the apostles. You're not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He's not saying that, that I'm the least because in, in the pecking order of who's the greatest, it's not me. He's the least in terms of the last to come, probably the least qualified, the least you would expect. He's not saying, you know, Peter's better and John's better and Matthew's better and even James the less is better. He's not saying that. He's saying I'm the last anyone would think of, the least qualified. Because of the persecution. And notice verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain. There, the idea of vain is empty. His grace towards me was never empty. The grace of God, phenomenal, phenomenal concept. We don't preach and talk about it near enough. We, you know, we use the phrase, the grace of God is his unmerited favor and all that stuff. But really what grace means is just God's favor to those who don't deserve it. Now, here's an important thing. We don't get degrees of grace. Our, our friends in the Catholic world, so you come from a Catholic background, every time you take a sacrament, you receive some grace. That's like a piece of bread. For the, for the Eucharist, there's a piece of grace. It goes with it, you know. Get married, you get a little more grace. Um, you know, when you die, there's some grace. I mean, it, 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 the grace is partial out, kind of. You either have grace or you don't. You have all or nothing. Well, sometimes you'll hear me pray, God, let them experience the full measure of your grace. I never say, God, give them more grace. If you ever hear me say, God, give them more grace, you need to come say, oh, David, you just said, God, give them more grace. Because, are you feeling okay? Do we need to take your blood pressure? Do we need to call you a mask? Because I'm not going to say that. But what I will say is, God, give them the full experience, the full expression, the full measure. Let them experience the fullness of. In other words, a lot of, I have all the grace there is to have. I don't always live like I have all the grace there is to have. 
Now, that's unless you believed in vain or it's empty. So the concept would be you either are full or you're empty kind of idea. Unless there was an emptiness in your belief. You have all the grace that you have. So he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He didn't prove vain. I labored even more than all of them. He says, probably because of what he was. He worked harder than all of them. But the grace of God with me. It wasn't but I. It wasn't because of me, but God's grace. So here's what he said. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. Way back at the beginning of, the, of his book, he talked about, you know, some of you follow Peter and some Apollos, some me, and some say you just follow Jesus. The idea probably was that a, a lot of people believe that a guy named Apollos came and, and did a lot of preaching. Paul's really saying it doesn't matter who preached. You believed and you experienced the fullness of grace. And so what we have here then is the formation of the gospel in its earliest probably coherent form. And at its core, it's pretty simple. It's not complicated. Um, it's popular these days to hear people talk about different types of gospel. You know, you know this, the gospel according to this person. Or, or you know, you hear, hear phrases, you know, that's, you know, what he said is gospel. Or, or you know, somebody will talk about, you know, their belief system or maybe their organization. And that's the gospel of that organization. You're used a lot of different ways. But at its heart, we understand that it's Jesus. Who he was and what he did. His death, burial, resurrection, and appearance. That is the core of our message. And, and one of the things I tell people, you know, we've talked to me about churches and all that stuff. Be sure you're at a church that their core message is the gospel. Probably everything else will be okay. But if their core message isn't the gospel, at some point, the wheels are going to come off. And that's going to be a mess. All right. Well, that's what I got. And uh, I, I just a couple of minutes. Actually, I could go past seven. There's no one of I don't want to get in a bad habit. So if you have a question related to what I've talked about tonight, please feel free to raise your hand and ask. If it's not related to what I've talked about tonight. Because I didn't study anything else. Anything? Ferris? Anything? All right. We're through. All right, everybody sit back down. Somebody had a question. <laughs> raise your hand up so we can see you. Okay, got to raise your hand. What's your question? I'm sorry. Paul was a big hotshot with the, religious, the Jewish religious uh -huh. community, but he never had any interaction with Jesus. Was yeah. he somewhere else? So um, Paul was probably, you know, would be younger than Jesus to some degree. Not only how much, probably a little bit. Not much, about close, but not, you know, because Paul was functioning right after Jesus. Uh, would have been much younger. Um, Paul, was, Paul was from Tarsus. And then Paul did a lot of his formal education in Jerusalem. Jesus didn't necessarily, Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem a lot. He, John records several times. It's possible that, most, that when he was there, Paul would have maybe been studying back in Tarsus or other places. He was also trained by Gamaliel, the, the member of the Sanhedrin. Um, he may have seen Jesus, but... Remember, for most of the guys who were religious leaders, they dismissed and discounted Jesus. So unless Paul was one of the group sent to deal with him, he wouldn't have had interaction. Now, the, the, 
the Pharisees up in Galilee would have interacted with him all the time. But the group in Jerusalem, unless Paul was designated to go deal with him, there would have been no reason for him to have interaction. Most of the time that Jesus was in Jerusalem, he never interacted with those guys. So he wouldn't have interacted with them but a couple of times from the trips he made. So that would be the explanation. Sounds good when I said it. I don't really know. But yeah, that, that would be why. I, when I say he was young, I don't mean he was like a child. But I mean, he was just, he was younger and would not have had the stature. Part of the reason he was sent out to do the persecution was because he was younger. And he was earning his stripes. He's, to use the mafia term, he's becoming a made man. That's what he was doing. So I watched too much mafia stuff on Facebook lately. These guys doing interviews. But... Uh, so he would not have been one of the guys who would have dealt with him anyways. It's a good question, though. And it's the last question. It's at 7 o'clock. <laughs>